The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. What you hear in the next hour could very well save your life. Now, here's your host, Sharon Kleiner. I want to invite you to listen to my show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, the power of water, global warming, environmental changes, and your health. And I'm Sharon Kleiner. I want to tell you that when I decided to do this show many years ago, over two years ago now, I have been an entrepreneur. I've been in research and environmental studies and water studies for over 30 years. And I decided that reaching out with Radio Talk was the way to and method to get people excited about their daily lives and what they can do for the environment themselves personally. But I decided to do this in a direction that it wasn't maybe normal that I could get you involved and you could relay messages to your own family and friends and coworkers that there's more to the environment than has been discussed. We're talking about recycling every day. We're talking about air pollution. We're talking about climate. We're talking about stress. We're discussing flu. We're discussing everything about life on this earth and what is causing our challenges and obstacles but we're not talking about the positive, about you and I and what we can do within ourselves to be healthy. And that has got to be the issue. How can you personally be healthy? Because if you're healthy and you feel good and you know directions to go to make your health a better day, that you will feel better about the stress. In other words, you'll challenge the stress. You'll challenge the the allergies. You'll challenge burning, itching eyes and dry mouth and nasal passages. You'll challenge uh, the fact that you don't feel as strong that day and you feel a little weaker and you, you don't feel like maybe uh, like getting up and going as much. You'll challenge. You'll, stresses are becoming a big issue as we've been reading. Stress, um, attitude. Uh, you'll challenge them. And that's what this show is about. We're even talking business, environmental businesses that are available, environmental patents. We've discussed communities that are getting together and building an environmental happiness within the community. And we're learning about our waters. We're learning about our trees. We're learning about the world out there, indoor conditions, outdoor conditions, the air we're living in that you can literally almost swim in. So listen to the show with our wonderful guests each week. And I need to tell you, each week I wanted to tell you about our population in the world. We're living on a planet, on the planet with the world out there. The universe is there. The U.S. population grew last week in the United States of America, 56,511 people. It grew. But, and the world grew last week by 1,478,994 people. 
the population worldwide now is 6,770,834,893 people sharing the planet with you. Sharing. The water that is on the planet is only, listen to this, 97.5% of the Earth's water is salt water. You only have less than 3% for fresh water. And we need lots of fresh water for agriculture, enormous amount of agriculture, because you're eating food. We gotta, the only way food grows is with water. Look at the plant in your house. It'll die without the water. You are the same. You personally and I, are. we need to drink a lot of water. We need our water for sanitation. We need water for everything on this earth to live and survive. Get into a prayer with me. Ask God what you can do and all your faith and what you believe in, what you can do to make a better place, to better understand the power of water and what it can do to save lives in this this globe to be a long-term eternal globe. That is not boring. That is exciting. So you have a lot to learn, and we our guests are special to teach us that. Today we have Gregory Jones from Ashland, Oregon, Ph.D. He's with the Department of Environmental Studies at Southern Oregon University. He's going to be discussing one of our favorite topics about how we can be healthier living in a dis, um, global warming and the climate change. Our second guest is Bob DeGrasse. And Bob is with another favorite subject with mine, Big Cypress National Reserve in Florida. And he's the Chief of Interpretation and Public Affairs at Big Cypress National Preserve. We're going to discuss discuss the water uh, restoration and the Everglades. And we might even ask him about that python that's been seen uh, once in a while and people and some of those alligators so that people hear about. But we're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature Sears Eye Mist, the natural method of moisturizing your eye. If you're sitting at the computer, you should be using it. And for allergies, uh, without you don't even need the eye drops. Nature Sears Eye Mist is all natural. We'll listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to Sharon Kleina Hour at Yahoo.com. 
That's Sharon Kleina Hour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Greg, are you with us? Yes, I am, Sharon. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, I was really excited about having you on today because you have some background with some excellent education for our classroom here at this show. Uh, tell us first, though, Greg, about yourself. Uh, how did you get over to uh, Oregon University, the Southern Oregon University, and what is your path? Well, I, uh, I'm a uh, climate scientist. I um, have both of my bachelor's and Ph.D. degrees from the University of Virginia, and uh, I came uh, to University of Virginia actually after growing up on the West Coast and then worked my way back to the West Coast here to uh, be a professor at, uh, at Southern Oregon University. Uh, I studied environmental sciences at the University of Virginia, but focused on the atmospheric side of things and, and, and really looking at climate. Uh, my background within that realm of being a climatologist is I study how climate influences agricultural decisions and productivity. Mm-hmm. And within agriculture, I also focus on one thing mostly, and that is growing grapes and making wine. I read that, and that is fascinating because I was hoping to have somebody on who could tell us about that. Now, the one thing I'm going to add to this, um, Greg, is the, to our before our listeners is that how our uh, agriculture, the plant life of Earth, is surviving is also the human life. So please, thinking that way, please, everybody, because our human life is growing on the earth as, as the plant life and the grapes and the soil that is influencing everything in the atmosphere. Gregory, um, do you want to be called Greg or Gregory? You can call me Greg. It's Thank fine. you. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, what you, when you chose to do this as, uh, years ago to get into the atmosphere, that was, an, uh, to me, uh, I started studying the background of the planet and what was happening to the air, Greg, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked that they weren't emphasizing on it more for health reasons, for personal and human health. And I looked at the plant life, and I could see they hadn't really thought enough about the plant life to me. Uh, tell me what you've been learning about plants and the atmosphere and the, and the relationship of the atmosphere to the, our plant life. Well, I, I guess first thing I heard on your initial introduction that you've been studying water resources to some degree or another, and actually that's what I started out to do was I, I really thought that water was going to be such a critical issue, uh, and I was going to be a hydrologist. That was my intent, and I um, I took a, a class in meteorology and climatology, and uh, it uh, piqued my interest because the fluid that we live in you know, above the surface, our atmosphere operates just like the fluid in our rivers and lakes and, and oceans. And can I can and, I back you up for a second for the sure. listeners to hear what you just said? A mm-hmm. magic keyword, fluid. Yeah. Explain what you meant by the fluid we're living in. Well, you know, we our atmosphere is a fluid, and it's yes, it it's hard for a lot of people to really understand because we're we're at equilibrium with our environment, and so our atmospheric environment around us is something that we somewhat take for granted because we're in that equilibrium. But if you just take your hand and you, and you move it across in front of you and you feel a little bit of resistance of the air around you, essentially what you're doing is you're moving molecules in that fluid. Thank you. Oh, Gregory, you made my day. Well, I mean, it's very your interesting. Your background thing. is so 
absolutely wonderful, perfect for saying this because you're the first person that I've had ever say the the fluid uh, of your life, the area you're living in, is is absolutely a make it or break it. Um, And I started Gregory over 30 years ago finding that if we didn't study this quickly enough and bring it to fruition eventually, human life would become full of diseases they cannot deal with. Medicine doesn't always cure the only way. It's got to be another direction, including to make it all together, the add-on package of all that is good for the individual health and plant life. But the fluid now we're living in is right. It's got to have a certain amount of moisture in the air or there's, it's just dead. Well, I mean, there's a lot of other things that go into it as well. And, and, and I think you know that as we look at our kind of the, the common areas, so to speak, where humans live, uh, we, we can look at water resources, uh, rivers and lakes and, and oceans, and we have a tendency to, to put boundaries on, on, on water to some degree or another. But the atmosphere is a common by which it's really hard to put boundaries on. As a matter of fact, we, we basically can't. And so when we are, you know, I live here on the West Coast, and, and the air that, that comes to me uh, in our atmospheric uh, flow comes to me from Asia, uh, across the Pacific. And, and I have to uh, understand that part of that air comes to me from whatever the Asians are doing within that air, whether it be burning coal or using pesticides or herbicides or just picking up soil particles or bacteria or viruses and moving them through the atmosphere. Now, when you're talking Asia, now when you say it comes through the air over into the uh, west coast area of America, uh, over in the Ashland area, Oregon area, Mm-hmm. Oregon listeners is between California and Washington. When you say that air is coming over from Asia, is that are the clouds bringing it in? The atmosphere acts. Or just the air is bringing it in? Well, the atmosphere acts very much like a river, and you just, okay, need, to know, you. You just need to know where the upstream flow is. Okay. okay. <laughs> and, and the, but the atmosphere doesn't have these very confined boundaries like a river might have with its, with its uh, two sides of the, of the river. The atmosphere tends to have broad um, kind of flowing zones. On its own. Yeah, so for example, in the mid-latitudes where, where we live, you know, roughly from about, say, 25 or 30 degrees north and south of the equator to about 60, 65 degrees north and south of the equator, all of the winds blow from the west to the east. And so looking upstream, if you're on the west coast of the United States, upstream is over the, the Pacific and from Asia. And remind the world, he's talking about the air. Yeah, and so the air is flowing across uh, a broad expanse of the Pacific from Asia. And if you're in Asia, the air is coming from Russia and Europe. If you're in Europe, the air is coming from the Atlantic and, and, and North America. And so we tend to, we don't tend to think about that very much, but long-term uh, transport of the air is very important because there, there's been some very interesting research that's shown that you know, many places in the world have trace elements uh, from other continents because of the air carrying those trace elements or soil particles with them. That's right. That's right. Now, what do you think, um, and I know the guests, because of listening to you discuss this, 
What's your research and, uh, and findings for the future? Uh, do you believe there is really a global warming or a climate change? Well, it, it's, a, it's a complicated uh, subject, and it's been so driven by um, a lot of politics, a lot of economics. Well, people are of... making a lot of money by driving it with politics. Well, and, you know, and there's also the issue of how society looks at uh, weather, and I, I kind of have to start at this place because I think it's a very important component of it. Uh, weather and climate are two things that more people in the world think they know more about than just about anything else. And if you think about it, think about the conversations that we have in society. You meet someone on the street and you talk about one thing or another, and it almost always leads to, well, the weather's nice today, or the climate's great here, or okay. something along that line. Mm-hmm. And so we, we as a society, I think even if we went back thousands of years, Weather and climate was very ingrained in kind of who we were and kind of how we experience our environment. And in fact, you just said something. It's almost like if you have nothing else to say, how's your weather? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> right. And so what that leads uh-huh. us to is, is it's something that everybody, I think, tends to feel very deep-seated about. And the issue today really is, is that when we talk about weather, the almost, almost immediately people get to the place, oh, well, the weather forecasters can't get it right. That they do. Well, yeah, they do. And it's the problem is with that statement is, is that it's all based upon perception. Okay. And, and it's been proven through many, many scientific studies that human perceptions of past weather are a little bit sketchy and that we really don't believe or They're understand. They're going on their own personal emotions. Well, exactly. And the, the idea, I mean, if you go back to your, your grandfather saying, you know, I used to walk seven miles to school you know, knee-deep in snow right. every day of the year kind of thing, well, you know, that right there was driven probably by a single snow event. Uh, my grandfather was also a young kid then, so his knees were much closer to the ground. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you're right. And so the that idea, is so true. The idea that one event can really... Um, if it's happened once, event. it happened. It had to happen. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, for example, how about if you're, if you're going to get married and the weather forecaster says the day of your wedding it's going to be clear and, and sunny and then it rains on that day, the weather forecaster will be forever wrong. Uh, that's and, right. And so the, the idea of generating perception either on the short term or the long term. Well, very, I, I, very Greg, I came to that con- same identical conclusion after many years of research and evaluating and writing mm-hmm. that they did the same thing. We've all been human to make the same sure. uh, evaluations on water. It's going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had water around us since the beginning of time. The, the water is water. Yeah. And uh, when I decided, I, and, and Gregory, you got lucky, you got to work study something that people had already been studying. I had to go in and discuss, to study the technology of water and human species and what we can do for the species of humans sure. uh, that is not normally the total drinking. Mm-hmm. And I found myself actually sometimes, and people would say, Greg, don't you feel a little lonely in the old days? And I said, no, I don't at all. Yeah. <laughs> now, when we're discussing um, our atmosphere. What did you did you ever touch into what's going on on the inside of our building's atmosphere compared to the outdoors? Well, I, I'm familiar. Just, just an envir- just a theory. You know, I'm just I'm familiar with building environments, but I don't do research within that area. But the, there's a whole movement of of trying to make uh, buildings more environmentally or health conscious and. You know, the problem, you know, historically has showed up. We do have sick buildings. We do and, have and, sick buildings. Yeah, and, you know, it's one of those things that um, 
that I don't. Can you think imagine, that... Greg? They're sitting in those thick buildings, and and now world, listen to me on this one too, Greg. I don't want um, the legal profession to go out and say, "Oh my gosh, we just found asbestos. Now we're going to go in and find this other stuff." I don't think that's the way to do it, Greg. I think the way to do it is everybody get conscious of what do you do with what, what's already there sure. to make it better. And I found that um, indoor conditions uh, were so unhealthy. We're going to take a minute with our sponsor, Greg, and let's come back and discuss that a little bit, and then we'll go back outside again okay. and discuss what you've been learning because health is an issue with what's going on in our on this planet. And I think the healthiness of people's education is very important. We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Ears I Missed, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinerHour at Yahoo.com. That's Sharon Kleina Hour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. We're talking to Greg Jones, uh, who is a Ph.D. from the Department of Environmental Studies at Southern Oregon University in Southern Oregon in Ashland, Oregon, one of the finest universities in the country. And it's got a reputation of drawing on very unique people to the university as professors and educators in, in the research department. Greg uh, we were talking about indoors, and before I leave the indoor issues of the sick buildings, you know, way back in time, Greg, um, I'm 67, Greg, and way back in time when they got worried about the energy and the and savings, they invented insulated windows, walls, forced air heating and cooling, not knowing that that would make everything living indoors airtight and it wouldn't have the fluid you just discussed Mm -hmm. to me i learned that and then they came out because our population is growing so quickly they had to mass produce quicker than ever in history fabrics which are on the on the beds they're uh, carpeting the chairs your clothing which is also a dehydrator what have you learned uh, about it, uh, some of the studies they're trying to make it more environmental friendly inside where people are most commonly working and living? Well, again, as I said, I don't, this is not an area specifically of my research, but the things I've seen there is, is that as we're moving into more green buildings, uh, the, the process is really looking at both sides of the building, how the outside can be more energy efficient and, and green, 
and then also how the inside can be healthier. And it's it's largely about air circulation, uh, limiting the amount of um, uh, products that go into the building of the walls or the ceilings or the floors, and then also generating uh, a proper circulation. Some of the circulation is done via mechanical processes, but a lot of it today is circulation also via uh, kind of natural heating and cooling differences mm-hmm. where you can, through heating of a building, you can generate flow upward or downward uh, during the, the day or night uh, that generates kind of a little bit more of a natural kind of flow of the atmosphere. Around. Well, we need that word fluid you talked about. See, human species, um, Greg, is the moment you're born, and the listeners who've listened to my show commonly learn this, the moment you were born and you came out of the womb, you... I came from water, mm-hmm. and you entered in the air you breathe. Everything became like a vacuum cleaner sucking suction cup. The eyelid opened. No two eyes are alike. No two skins on the complexion alike. No two fingerprints alike, and more. That's a dehydration of life, human life. That what's happening is even in the delivery room, walk of life, and more, we don't have moisture meters to check ourselves to see how are we dehydrating because that's the detoxification and that's our survival to fight uh, bacteria, uh, diseases, energy, circulation, and more. Sure. Uh, Right. I wish I could get you to start studying that one (laughs) because you're very good at the other one. Uh, But maybe we can talk you into it today uh, and get your university to go for something. But back to life. If it doesn't detoxify, what happens to the toxin? It backs up behind the skin and diseases are common. And how often do you know which medication will work properly? Because we don't know there's no two dehydrations the same. Mm-hmm. And that's why I took it so serious about the indoor, because like you said, there are fluids outside with some moisture in the air, some around different types of moisture and levels, whether it be absolute or relative humidity. Mm-hmm. Then we go over to the indoors. Can we decide what's indoors? I don't think so, because every indoor condition it takes a change depending upon the way they decorated, whether they had the window open or closed that day, and more. Sure. This is where I came from, and to me, the environmental studies, the climate control, and more also has to go indoors. Now, let's go outdoors um, again to the world. Uh, we love the outdoors all over the world. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're learning about the continents, and then let's move into your wines, because wines that can only grow in very selective environments. Well, I, I guess let me I'll back up just a little bit to the idea that, I mean, what do we know about our climate? And you know, it's pretty complicated. And as I was trying to get at earlier, the idea that, that human perceptions actually kind of get in the way. And, and so as scientists, one of the things that we try to do is we try to um, understand with some level of certainty what has happened in the past and then allow that to uh, drive our abilities to understand what's happening in the future. And climatologists tend to do something very similar than to meteorologists. Meteorologists are trying to predict over a short period of time to let the public know what, what the weather is going to be like, what the temperature is going to be, and what the uh, rainfall and, and, and rates and, and locations are going to be. And the, and the challenge really there is is that today, uh, you know, forecasters for, for the weather are somewhere between 90 and 97% correct. But the problem I think that shows up is, is that when, when the society sees them get it wrong once or twice, 
then they're wrong forever, and they're not trusted. So the old saying that the oh the weather forecaster he can't tell the tell us what's going on here, that tends to pervade over to the climate side of things, mm-hmm. because as climatologists, really what we do is we we look at weather over long periods of time. Okay, so you're able. So the difference between describe it again. That was a good one for the listeners to understand the education is that meteorologist and the climatologist. The two differences are again. Can you? I really. The, the, the differences really are um, over how much time you're talking about mm-hmm. and uh, what kinds of data. So mm-hmm. a meteorologist talks about the here and now, mm-hmm. and a climatologist talks about the long term mm-hmm. of that here and now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a climatologist uh, um, tends to describe the broad, long-term structure. Mm-hmm. A meteorologist tells you what it's going to be like in your location over a few days. Okay. Okay. And so, so what happens is with the climatology side of things is is that there's a, a little bit of society uh, uh, that looks at climatologists and says, well, if they can't get the forecast right on my wedding day, and, and then how can they get the, the climate right over the next 10 years or 20 years or 100 years? Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of things are very problematic. And uh, But I think that climate science is um, is gotten to a place today where we have a pretty good understanding of climates of the at least the immediate past and we we know a reasonable amount about climates that go back quite a ways mm-hmm. and what that does is it allows us to build uh, with some certainty what our climates of the future potentially could look like and that's where climate the discussion behind climate change or global warming really kind of comes into play most people tend to use the term global warming to indicate that there is some level of climate change that's due to humans. Well, that's the one that's been so heavily publicized. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of the one that's uh, been, you, you see it in the media, it's the basic uh, kind of conversation that people have, they talk about global warming. Mm-hmm. Climate scientists tend to use the term climate change because we know that climates change all the time mm-hmm. and that, that humans have not always played a role and that there are natural and well humans right exactly can I add something right there Um, we have a tendency as a society on the planet and we're living on the planet together as a family group here is that we have a tendency to forget that the cycle of earth is moving and the cycle of human social and cultural life moves Mm -hmm. and uh, along that movement and change the people change along with it. It's like you get up in the morning, you put your foot on the ground, and I don't care where you're living. If you're living under the bridge or you're living in a pent- on top of Manhattan in a penthouse, wherever you're living in the world you're living, we all touch the ground and begin a day. We immediately, Greg, look at the weather. Sure. We all do. And uh, us girls look at what we're going to wear. But the rest of you, everybody else, kind of looks like, oh, and, and it's, it's no doubt that some people's attitude is going to go by the weather. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, there, it, it's, it's pretty clear. And so weather and climate play some very germane kind of societal con- connections with us. And I think that that's very important. The, um, as we look at and talk about uh, climate change issues, we have to understand that there's a large uh, amount of um, natural mechanisms that cause climates to change. But the issue today is largely, and I think I heard you say earlier that we have 6.7 billion people on the planet. Yeah. 
I think what we've really come to a realization over at least the past 50 to 100 years is, is that that magnitude of the number of people on the planet can't help but change climate in different ways. And, and what I, in different ways that I think is a very important term because climate does, humans don't influence climate change just by our use of fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions, which is what most people hear about. But it, it's also just on the sheer magnitude of how we change the surface of the earth. That's true. Um, by you know, I've said, over Greg, uh, excuse me for a second so I can get a little moment there on something I've thought of, and you might uh, have thought it out, and listeners may have thought about it too, is we on earth that are here, the, we humans, are the, an ecosystem too. It's oh, affecting yeah. the whole universe, the planet, everything. Sure. And you mentioned there that... That the population growth and what we're doing is all a huge amount of responsibility on Earth. How we decide to live, personally. Sure, sure. And, and you know, the something you said is important that humans are an ecosystem. The I think this is one of the issues that shows up a lot when we talk about climate change. You know, you can hear a scientist uh, that has studied climate in any given place in the world and say well, temperatures have gone up one degree or two degrees, something like that. Now, for the average human being, when they hear the number one and two, it really doesn't make much difference or sense to them because one or two degrees doesn't seem like a lot. Now, when you're looking at it as a scientist and you're thinking one or two degrees, immediately in your mind, how many years are you thinking this has come to play? Well, I, I guess, let me just back up to that. Think okay. about it. Think about humans, though. A one to two degree difference in our climate doesn't have the same tolerance issue or threshold issue for us as it does for a salamander okay. or a plant okay. or some other natural system. Many of our uh, organisms, uh, both plants and animals, exist in a fairly narrow what we what we would call a climate niche, and so um, a climate niche. Niche. Um, so the idea is is that um, let's just say some insect exists in a very narrow climate niche. It may be only one or two degrees at the most that that it has in terms of its tolerance. And mm -hmm. so if climates change just a little bit, you can have dramatic differences in whether or not that insect or that that amphibian or that plant is impacted, whereas for humans, our thresholds and our tolerances are quite a bit wider. Right. And so mm -hmm. uh, what, what may be a, an impactful one or two degrees to one organism, it, it might be 10 or 12 or 15 degrees to another. You know, you mentioned something to think about is, is like if we say uh, our temperature as a human went up two degrees, mm -hmm. and, um, and you stop and think about it, and then we take it down again, and our goes up. Do we take our own temperature every day? No. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there's uh, thinking there with evaluations of sure. what's going on with our lives. That's why I was talking about that little moisture meter from birth, sure. uh, about detoxifying and understanding our life in this fluid. I love, uh, I'll never forget that one, Greg, is living in fluid. Uh, because I've said to everyone that if I, with my life here, if I can bring attention to the way we're living and the air we're living in and the moisture that is so important and drink a ton of water, and I hope, Greg, you're drinking a lot of water, 
uh, that people think it, take it for granted that, well, I, I, I can live without water. I could be a camel. Look how far I've gotten. Uh, well, life on Earth is no different than the plant life and giving it enough water. I wanted to ask you about the wines. What have sure. you been learning about your wine uh, well, research? Well, what ended up happening, when I start, first started looking into a, a topic for my Ph.D. years ago, I, I was very interested in how climate influenced agriculture in all forms. Oh, it is. It's just fascinating. And then as I started looking deeper, I... Um, I realized that there were some systems that were easy to study and some that were more difficult and some that were more interesting because of their nature. And that's where growing grapes and making wine came in. I kept finding that we had a, uh, we had a fairly long history of, of the movement of wine production from the Greeks and Phoenicians to the Romans to the old, Euro, old world Europe to the New World. And that I'll history... Ask you real quickly... Yeah. When you started that, did you ever find out what year invented the grape? Well, there's there's a lot of like a lot of things that we have today. There's some speculation that goes okay. back to did it originate in in China or did it originate in the Middle East? Okay. Most people tend to point to the Middle East, somewhere in the Persian region, uh, and there's actually a town called Shiraz in in Persia that a lot of people think that that may have been the kind of uh, the the start of it, and we're talking at least four to five thousand BC. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, there's some speculation that there could have been other uh, grape-like wine products made in China before then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but um, you know, so I, as I started looking at this, I realized that there was this long history uh, of this agricultural. Hello. I'm here. Okay, that was. I just had a big. Click. Yeah. But, but anyway, so there's this long history of, of production. Plus, what wine has done to life has been interesting. It has provided a, um, it's an alcoholic beverage. It has a certain amount of romanticism. It's used by the church for sacramental purposes. Um, it is also has a strong sense of place. So some places become known for certain things versus others in terms of making wine. Mm-hmm. So all of those things together. And Oregon built a place in the world, and fascinating. Um, sure. France was well-known in other countries, but Oregon yeah. now has become very well-known for the uh, ideal location, environmental locations in Oregon to build, to, build, to um, grow uh, grapes. Sure, and, and, and the whole idea behind it is, is that, again, varieties have, just like salamanders or insects, varieties for growing grapes and making wine are very climatically sensitive. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you look at uh, wine grapes, you can go from one end to the other. Pinot Noir is a relatively cool climate grape. It can really only grow in 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 a marginal cool climate that allows it to produce a delicate, uh, lovely wine. Mm -hmm. Whereas Cabernet Sauvignon grows much more in a warmer, uh, hotter climate. And if you tried to grow it in a cool climate, it wouldn't produce very well. Mm-hmm. And so, now what is what is well? What is it? Uh, which one is a very well 
what is the environment of Oregon, this part of Oregon, known to uh, be? Most of, most of Oregon is considered to be a cool climate area. However, okay. if you go inland or higher, somewhat higher in elevation, you can get into warmer climates. What about the Merlots? Because I've heard that Merlots are very, uh, people from all over this country love the Merlots in this area. Sure, and, 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 and Merlot grows fairly well in our region okay. as well. And it's just like going into France. If you start in, um, a, a great example in France is if you start at the north in Champagne. Uh, they produce Champagne in Champagne because they can't ripen the fruit completely, mm -hmm. and therefore they make a sparkling wine from it. But as you head south in France toward the French Riviera, mm -hmm. down toward uh, Marseille and, mm -hmm. and Provence and in that area, mm -hmm. it goes from cool climate varieties to warmer climate varieties all the way to, uh, down to that mm -hmm. region. And the same thing could be said for Oregon or California or mm -hmm. Uh, Germany or parts of Australia and New Zealand. Greg, we only have one minute left. I've enjoyed this. Is there a way, is there something you'd like to say uh, to the world uh, about what you've been learning about the uh, climate change and how well, they should be uh, evaluating it? With I think that, that we have to realize as a human race that we have a role in, in what we're doing to our environment all in all. The, do we have all the answers to, the, to how humans are are influencing our climate environment? No, but that's not the point. Mm -hmm. The point is, is that as a human species, we should just be aware of how we utilize resources mm -hmm. and what that means to our atmospheric and, and, and water environments and, and what that means for future generations. Mm -hmm. If we don't, then we'll end up in places that we really don't want to go. Right. And, and we, so, while we want the world, you know, I had a scientist tell me one time, Greg, we may have to take the word eternity out of our planning. I disagree. Uh, people are serious. People will t join this mission of concern for them. If their own health, if you're healthy, this uh, adds to the ecosystem of the rest of the world. If you keep sure. healthy. And, and if I could put it all into two words, awareness through education. Yes. Thank so, you. And that's so, why this show, Greg. Yeah. So if people become more aware of how we live and interact with our environment. Exactly through education, and then educate others, then we'll all be in a better place. And thank you for your background and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And thank you for giving us some time today with uh, helping us learn more. You're welcome. You enjoy your, and you were there at the Oregon Famous Shakespearean Theater, yes, and Brit yes. Festival, and the Boats on the River and the Rogue River. Yes. Enjoy your summer. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. And thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. And sometimes I always feel funny audience when I've had uh, a special ex education and I've gained so much. I always want to say, oh, wow, but I'll, I'll learn to hold myself back. But today, that was really interesting, and we've had the most exciting guests on for all this time, and the time goes fast. We will take a moment from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Bob DeGrasse with the Florida Reserve, and we're going to learn a little bit about uh, the Everglades, and then we're going to talk to him about that python, too. We'll listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. 
Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Bob, how are, are you with us? Yes. Hi, how are you? Well, I want to thank you for joining us. And listeners, Bob is the Chief of Interpretation and Public Affairs at the Big Cypress National Reserve in Florida. And Bob, how did you get where you're at? Um, what uh, You had to have some particular personal interest to be involved in uh, something like that? I'm sorry, you cut out for the first few seconds. Okay, of how did, I was going to ask you, how did you get to be in the position you're in? Did you find a per- particular interest when you were young and along the way decided to be involved in um, the Florida National Reserve? Did you start with the U.S. Forest Service? And how did you, where did you, how did you get where you're at? Uh, well, actually, I work at Big Cypress National Preserve, which is a unit of the National Park Service. Um, it was an area that was set aside in 1974 to protect the water, the fresh water flow from the Big Cypress Swamp going out into the 10,000 Islands area of Everglades National Park. Um, myself, personally, I grew up in Wisconsin and um, grew up in a very rural area and always liked the outdoors, and that's what spurred my interest in getting into uh, an outdoor-related career field. And Wisconsin has a lot of lakes. Yes, it does. Yeah, yes, it, it does. Has so you obviously lakes. like that fresh water. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, for our listeners to understand, the Florida Reserve now, um, tell us about, before we go into some of these other subjects, about the interwaterways that come through Florida. Are you familiar to, to discuss this today? With where does that fresh water come from that comes, I hear it comes in from Canada down uh, to the Florida area, and you, they, you have all around some regions of Florida, like canals, they're called inter-freshwaterways. Well, primarily I work within the greater Everglades ecosystem of South Florida, um, and the greater Everglades ecosystem is made up of a variety of different waterways. Um, the area actually begins up around Orlando in an area called the Chain of Lakes. Okay. And then the Chain of Lakes run down through the Kissimmee River into Lake Okeechobee. Mm-hmm. And then Lake Okeechobee overfills or overflows its southern bank, creating that broad, shallow river of grass that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, and then other areas associated with that river of grass in the greater Everglades are the Big Cypress Swamp to the, to the west of the river of grass, the mangrove estuaries along the coast of Florida, and Florida Bay, Florida Keys, and Biscayne Bay in the Florida Reef Track. The amount so, of water is just enormous around Florida. 
Oh, yeah. Um, we in South Florida especially are seasonally flooded, and typically we get about um, more than 60 inches of rain annually in a six-month period. Between Boy, I don't know if you heard our performer, um, the first guest, Gregory, uh, Dr. Jones, but he was talking, he's a climatologist, but he's understanding the environment, but he calls the air we're living in the fluid, and you have a lot of humidity uh, yes. in the air, a lot of fluid, uh, moisture in the air, and then all of a sudden it turns into that particular type of rain, probably tropical rain. Yeah, we are typically, or we're primarily a subtropical system here, and so we do we don't have the typical seasons that a lot of people in the United States are familiar with, spring, summer, winter, and fall. Our seasons are primarily uh, wet season that goes from May to October and a dry season that goes from November through um, April. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. I want to ask you, down in the Miami, now I'll go over to this um, Palm Beach area mm-hmm. and ask you before I move on with some of these questions, you know that canal that comes through there, um, I like it, um, but uh, there in um, Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale, those freshwater canals that come through their mm-hmm. the neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you call those? Well, they are, um, they're part of the South Florida Water Management District, and there's an extensive system of canals in South Florida. Is there a particular name you call them? No, uh, each one has its own designation, whether okay. it be C-111 or they have okay. a numerical designation the to them. The listeners need to know... Um, that down in the Florida, in, in Florida, uh, the fresh water that comes from long, I was, I'm, and I, I would like to have, uh, find out more about this, but this fresh water influence coming down from probably the Canadian area coming down through the East Coast uh, down to Florida, they long ago, and uh, maybe you'll know, Greg, but long ago they created these canals and they go through neighborhoods, let's call it. You can just imagine a canal that's man-controlled, Yes. Water, and they have outside of their uh, c- uh, condominiums, apartments, and homes that they own uh, these canals that are. They have their boats out there, or even have tourists and boats coming by. They do, yeah. Waterways that are absolutely the most fascinating uh, to to, wa- to see, and the it's all fresh water. It is, yeah. I mean, we're in a we're, we are in a very wet area, like you said before. And when people first moved to Florida, of course, one of the challenges that they had was to how to was how to um, basically drain these wetlands so that they could. I, when, you know, I was just going to ask you that next question: Is that what they did with the best source of the water? They may turn it into canals. They basically created the canal system in an okay. attempt to create more dry land for agricultural purposes okay. or for development purposes. Now, Greg, are you familiar to tell us just about when you think that began? Um, the canal building in South Florida began probably more so in the in the very early 1900s, but okay. the South Florida um, Water Management Dis- District project which was called the Everglades um, Agricultural Plan, was actually started in the 1950s um, and completed in the 1960s. And it was a process of levees and canals and pumping stations. And listeners, you have to imagine, it's just absolutely gorgeous, Greg. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Bob. Mm-hmm. Greg was our former guest. <laughs> yeah. Bob, um, it is absolutely fascinating, listeners, around the world to see in Florida this Mac, uh, unbelievable canals going through the neighborhoods, maintained, attractive, recreational, 
And can you imagine what it's doing to the ecosystem? Now, uh, over in the Florida Everglades, what are you doing to preserve uh, uh, the, the, uh, the problems there? Uh, we've had some, uh, some reports on you've had a python. Is that coming from that area you're from? Yeah, we do have an extensive exotic species issue, um, whether it be plant or animal. Um, and, of course, a lot of people do hear about the Burmese python issue that we have in South Florida at this time. Um, now, is it more common this time of year because of the heavy humidity, or is it year-round? Oh, it's a year-round issue that we're trying to control in, in, within the greater Everglades and everything. Um, it's believed that these snakes were possibly um, pets that people were not able to control anymore and oh. thinking that they were doing uh, oh, so a humane thing. something that naturally thing. grew there and produced there. It's, you think it's more from the pets. Oh, yes, it's definitely yeah, not a native yeah. species. It's an exotic species that's been introduced into the natural area. what areas. about alligators? Alligators are a native species, and we have a lot of alligators throughout the Everglades, and they're very important to the system. Actually, I was speaking earlier about going through these wet and dry cycles. Um, the, the alligators instrumental in maintaining open pools that are vital during the dry season down here because a lot of the um, animals that depend on water take refuge in these gator holes, as we call them, during the dry season. Oh. Um, even though that it's an available food source for the alligator as well, a lot of the fish and turtles and things like that will survive in the gator hole until the next wet oh, season. Be, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That, we ought to have a show on that one sometime. I'd like to hear more about that one. Yeah, um, the gator holes are... We've one minute left. Uh, uh, this segment is always the shortest segment. But, Bob, I'd like to have you on again and get into that... Uh, education, that has got to be a first for about a lot of people to hear. Oh, yeah. How would you like to close with one minute left on the Florida Everglades? Well, the main thing is um, I think the Florida Everglades, very much like a lot of large wild areas in the, in the United States and in the world, is you may never come and visit it, but it's nice to know that there's still large wild areas like that that are um, are. Uh, available for us to visit if we do have the opportunity. And, of course, the Everglades, Everglades National Park and Big Cypress National Preserve and the other associated public lands within the Everglades actually makes up the largest wild area east of the Mississippi River. And yet it's so close to millions of people and that call this place their backyard. Okay. Well, I appreciate you being on. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to have our program director discuss talk to you about Bob, about what the what is happening with what the alligator does with that pool. That is a fascinating education. Okay. You have a nice day. Yes, you too. Thank you very much Stay for cool. the time. Bye. Bye. Well, but as we're closing today, I need to remind you all of the swine flu that's coming up this fall. And, of course, I would tell you, if you're made up of 80 to 90% water, you obviously have to drink a lot of water during this time to detoxify. So if you've only had four glasses today or a day, remember you're going to have to increase that if you want to also contribute to a healthier lifestyle uh, during this flu season and um, this season that we all have to be conscious of our health. Uh, Be sure and wash your hands every day, drink a lot of water, change your bedding once a week, and take it serious. That will also help our infants and our elderly if you can keep from getting the flu. Stay healthy. Earth has a secret. Embrace your life every precious moment. Earth is whispering. 
Never say goodbye. Leave your footprint. Learn as much as you can. I want to thank you for listening. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember to visit Sharon's website at SharonKleinaHour.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.